0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 530 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. I've had a fun week because in my efforts to get out into the world, I went to see a David Williamson play at the Ensemble Theatre in Sydney called Rhinestone Rex and Miss Monica. And it was starring uh, Georgie Parker and Glenn Hazeldean. And it was great. It was about Monica, who the character is a a member of the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, and she probably drinks a bit too much. But anyway, she's forced to give up the violin because of her RSI. So she just kind of mopes around her apartment in the inner city in Glebe. Um, And it was great because I used to live in Glebe. So there were a lot of references that I recognised. And she wants to, anyway, she wants to renovate her kitchen. So she gets a tradie in. That's Gary, rhinestone Rex, because he loves country music. So there are a fair lot of music references in the play, but of course the usual David Williamson, you know, banter and conversation and humour. I enjoyed it, so I would recommend it if you're after a fun night out. Moving on, I want to give a big shout out to Australian Writers' Centre graduate Inda Ahmad Zari, whose latest picture book is now out. It's called The Month That Makes the Year and it's with Alan and Unwin. And oh, Inda's just going from strength to strength. She's just got picture book after picture book after picture book coming out. Uh, It's a book that explores the celebration of Ramadan through the eyes of a Muslim child. And it's also Inda's debut as an author and illustrator. You know, because if she wasn't talented enough in being an author, she's also an illustrator. (laughs) She is a real inspiration because not only is she now writing and illustrating her own picture books, she's also a surgeon. Yes, as in... surgical doctor not a word surgeon I'm not being metaphorical not a tree surgeon she's a surgeon of humans so she pursues her passion for writing while working and looking after her family (laughs) to find out more about her incredible journey there's a great profile on Inda and um, which also shows you her other picture books that have been published on the Australian Writers Centre blog and I'll put the link in the show notes in case that's easier for you. Now, I want to move on to our writing tip this week. This is a question that came out of our fabulous Facebook group for creative writing graduates. And it's about using place or town names in a novel. Specifically, it, the question was about middle grade novels. But um, So from a legal or copyright perspective, you can absolutely use the names of real cities and towns in any story you write. I mean, we see that all the time, right? And in fact... Sometimes the location or setting can be very important. I mean, there's definitely a difference between setting a story in Boston versus, say, Brisbane or Bangkok. And then within a city, the suburb or neighbourhood that you choose could be quite important too. But if you set something in a small town or a very specific location you do run the risk of either maybe getting it wrong, if if you're not familiar with the town, like maybe you're putting streets or landmarks in the wrong place, or making it too authentic. Now, by too authentic, I mean, if you base a cafe on a real cafe, and then some drama or tragedy happens there, the owners of the real cafe might get quite annoyed. So probably a good Rule of thumb is to use the names of big cities and towns, but to make up fictional names for smaller pa- smaller places, even if they're based on a real location. Giving it a fictional name also allows you to draw on all your knowledge of that place, but you can move things around to serve your story. So, you know, you might put the supermarket closer to the ballet school or whatever. Basically, there's no hard and fast rule, but that is a good guide. As I said, that was a question posed by one of the members of our creative writing graduates facebook group which is a group exclusively for graduates of any of our creative writing courses and it's a very supportive place where people can share questions and ideas and if you're not one of those graduates though remember we also do have a group on facebook for listeners of the podcast just search for so you want to be a writer podcast community on facebook and request to join we'd love to see you in there Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creativewriting. Now, let's move on to our competition this week. I am so thrilled to be able to bring this to you. I have three copies of The Vein of Gold by Julia Cameron. Oh, this is so exciting. Julia Cameron, of course, is the internationally best-selling novel of The Artist's Way, which is such a fantastic book. This one, The Vein of Gold, takes you on a deep internal journey through seven kingdoms to unlock your creativity. The perfect cure for writer's block. Here's the blurb, Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way has been embraced by many thousands of people and in connecting creativity to spirituality, it has uncovered the potential of millions of people. In the vein of gold, Julia Cameron uses her experience and world-renowned techniques as a creativity coach to challenge her readers to go deeper within themselves and to uncover wider horizons featuring inspiring essays on the creative process and more than 100 imaginative, engaging and energising tasks for authentic growth, renewal and healing. The Vein of Gold takes readers on a journey to the heart of creativity through seven kingdoms. Whether you're already actively pursuing a creative enterprise or are just beginning to nurture your own creativity, this powerful book provides the innovative and practical tools for mining the vein of gold within you. And I have three copies to give away. Just go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 27th of March. That's writerscentre.com.au slash win. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? I hope you are because this is a doozy. Picnic. Now, it's P-Y-K-N-I-C. P-Y-K-N-I-C. N-I-C, but pronounced picnic. Yes, sounds exactly like picnic, as in, you know, eating a meal outdoors on a nice checkered blanket and having some taramas, how do you say that, taramasalata and tzatziki and hummus and all that kind of stuff. But no, it's not that. It's P-Y-K-N-I-C. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, it is a body type characterised by a stocky build with a large chest and abdomen And a tendency to obesity. Looking into it, I think these days we tend to use the word endomorph maybe instead of picnic, probably because it's a bit confusing. So in the movie Twins, remember the movie Twins? Danny DeVito would have a picnic body type as compared to Arnold Schwarzenegger's more muscular body type. There you go, picnic. And that was the word of the week. But now let's move on to our writer in residence. Today, I'm talking to Chris Wright. His latest book is The Millionaire's Factory, the inside story of how Macquarie Bank became a global giant. And it's one he co authored with journalist Joyce Malakis. Chris is an award winning journalist and author based in Singapore, but who formerly worked in Australia. He has been Asia and Middle East editor of Euromoney, editor of Asia Money, and investment editor of the Australian Financial Review. Thanks so much for joining us today, Chris.
1: Thank you, Valerie. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: The Millionaire's Factory. Okay. The inside story of how Macquarie Bank became a global giant. I'm absolutely fascinated by this story and I'm, I am love the fact that we're chatting about it because I had so many questions. So first though, I mean, Macquarie Bank is a household name, certainly in Australia these days. And, um, Uh, but not many people necessarily know all of the things that they do. First of all, for people who haven't got their hands on a copy of the book yet, what is this book about?
1: So, Macquarie, you're absolutely right. The point of it is that there's always at least five different things at once. You might know it as a place that owns infrastructure, as a place that used to own the M2 motorway in Sydney, uh, if you're in Britain, you probably know it because it used to own Thames Water or a motorway there. Uh, but, but but it's always a lot of different things at once. It's an investment bank. It's a commodities player. It's a it's a regular mainstream bank in Australia. Uh, It's an infrastructure specialist. In fact, the whole skill of Macquarie is its ability to reinvent and be something different uh, for whatever the environment requires at the time. So the book is a study of how they became what they are from their beginnings in 1969 all of the way up to uh, the present day.
0: So you co-wrote this book with Joyce Malarkis. What made you both think, oh, let's write this huge book on Macquarie Bank?
1: Well, Joyce works for the Australian newspaper, and she and I worked together on the Finn Review in Sydney a number of years ago. These days I'm based uh, overseas from Australia. I'm based in Singapore. And it just occurred to Joyce one day, did you know nobody's ever written a book about Macquarie? And I challenged this. I thought there must be one. There has to be one. But there wasn't. She phoned me up and she said, well, let's do it together. She has the best contact book in Australian banking. Mine is chiefly international. She's an absolutely top class uh, newshound. I write long form. You put us both together and we had a skill set that really uh, ought to have matched, I thought, and uh, and to bring something together. And we just thought Joyce knew that within Australia, Macquarie was unique. I knew that globally Macquarie was unique. There is truly nothing in the world that looks quite like it. And that's compelling. That makes, we thought, for a fascinating uh, idea for a book.
0: Personally, I find it astounding that a book hasn't been written by Macquarie Bank already as well. So I was quite shocked at that. But the thing is, when you think of oh, I might co-write a book with somebody, you don't usually pick somebody in a whole other continent. So how did the how did that kind of make sense for you to to do that? Why were you the first person that you called? <laughs>
1: Well, the first reason is because Joyce knows Macquarie well enough to understand that roughly three quarters of its earnings now come from outside of Australia, and that's really been a story that's evolved over the last fifteen to twenty years. Uh, it's it's it still calls Australia home. It's still listed in Australia. Its principal shareholders are still there. But it's but its range of businesses it makes more than double uh, from the US or from North America, I should say, uh, than what it does from from Australia. So we always understood from the outset that telling the Australian side of it was not going to be the full story. We needed to tell the stories of Canada, of South Korea, of the UK, of Germany, if we were really gonna reflect what it is. So that's how it came about. together with uh, two people in two completely different time zones and two different continents. And uh, I have to say we met in person once, just once in the 15 <laughs> months between signing the deal and uh, the actual free uh, launch publicity, uh, which tells its own story, I think, about how we've all learned to do, do things differently.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But the thing is, once you decide, okay, let's write a book together, the thing that I was struck by was the sheer amount of information and research, I mean, told very well, but clearly it was something that needed to be extremely accurate. um, And it needed to reflect the complexities of all of the various things that happened with Macquarie Bank, not only in terms of the deal structures, but also in the culture, in the way people did things, in their personalities, in many cases, and so on. So At the start, at the very start, if you cast your mind back, you go, yes, we're going to write this book together. How did you plan to do this? Because there's no way. (laughs) I don't don't think you can kind of predict all of the things that you needed to to research. How did you plan it? What did you think you were going to, what were your steps?
1: Step number one was to find out how Macquarie was going to be about it because that was going to have an influence. So this was an independent book, a work of journalism, And we got the book deal first before going to Macquarie and saying, look, this is coming. Uh, We'd love you to be a part of it, but it's coming either way. Now, Macquarie, if you know anything about them, they love to manage risk. And a book, which they don't get to see before publication, is a risk that's uncomfortable for them. So they were not probably thrilled in the first instance to find out that it was coming. But they knew me, they knew Joyce. And they went away and they had to think about it and said, well, we've decided we're going to give you access. We've decided we're going to let you see our people. So that was really step one, because everything else followed from that. Uh, and in total, we interviewed 130 people, uh, of whom probably the biggest cons- but, but the biggest group would be former uh, employees of, of Macquarie. I think there's probably 60 or 70 of those, probably, I guess, about 30 of the current lot, all five current and former surviving chief executives Uh, and then the rest was the competition. So that was a large part. That was probably stage two, was mapping out who do we want to speak to? If we're going to tell a whole story from 1969 up to yesterday, then who do we need to get who between them tell all of those stories? And as you can imagine, everybody you interview suggests, well, have you spoken to this person and this person, and then you get another two. Uh, And eventually it it, it becomes quite hard to manage it all. And you have so much information, you get to a new problem which is what are we going to use and what are we going to leave out? Uh, so devising a structure was reasonably straightforward. Broadly, it was chronological, but with some diversions to go overseas, for example. Uh, but really, the, the the hardest part of it, I would say, was just marshalling this huge cast of interviewees and working out how are we going to use this absolute wealth of information that we'd obtained.
0: So there's interviewing people, but there's also um, you recount a conversation that you had with uh the former ceo uh nicholas moore where he was well kind of not prickly but not the most effusive person uh when when you initially had the chat and he said come back when you've read every single i can't remember the number but every single annual report which you That's then did I know. yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then and then came back how many was it again
1: I think by then it was 52. Now it's 53, if I've got my numbers right. Yeah, it was a lot of reading.
0: So there's, but it's not only the annual reports, right? Because apart from talking to people, apart from reading the annual reports, what kind of level of paper research, not just talking to people, where did you have to go for that kind of stuff?
2: It
1: was huge. Being a listed company, there is an absolute wealth of material. I mean, if you just tried to read every press release they have on the Internet, you'd be there forever. Uh, But twice a year, of course, uh, they they report, they give uh, detailed earnings briefings. There's hundreds of pages of material that goes along every single one of those. So you, you could truly read forever. You had to be somewhat selective uh, about sort of pulling out the stories and the themes and then going back to all of that for uh, for verification. Uh, but, but, but certainly the paper research was immense. I, I must say Nicholas Moore's uh, advice was actually good. Going through the annual reports does give you a much better chronology of what happened and when than you get otherwise, because people's memories – are fallible naturally, particularly if you're asking them to go back 50 years. People think it happens in a particular things happened in a particular sequence, and the truth of it is, they did not. And it's comprehensive and it's legally checked. So if you cite an annual report, you know that legally you're bulletproof. Uh, it's going to have been checked within an inch of its life. So so that was all good. But then so much of it, you, you could just read and talk forever. There was just so many different directions that you could go to with this. And everything you find out enough about, you're sort of reminded that oh, there's a whole other thing I just haven't looked at. You know, I haven't looked at what they've done in Poland or Tanzania or South Africa or Mexico. You, you can sort of go forever. It really eventually becomes a question of you not know, where do you start, but when do you stop?
0: Yes. So where do you stop? Because what was your line to determine should this be in or not?
1: Well, for a first thing, I find a deadline enormously helpful, <laughs> and <laughs> well, uh, we did encourage Helen and. We're, Write it in there in big letters. Don't let us go over because, you know, nothing crystallizes you like this is the date and we have to make some hard decisions right now. And um, we overwrote really quite dramatically. And there was some give in that, but we still had to reduce about 30,000 words from it. And I sort of cheated slightly, Uh, I I, I should say we, but I I had a particular interest in in devising this separate website for endnotes. I I felt strongly that this would be quite an interesting way to do it because for various reasons, when you write about the quarry, there's gonna be a lot of footnotes. Partly that's because it's made up of hundreds and hundreds of businesses with slightly different legal names. Now, if you put that in a text, it's utterly unreadable, but you do sort of need it there if you're gonna be accurate. And then it grew from there and we thought, well, these end notes, you can have whole other stories in there, but there just wasn't room to go into the text. So there's 30,000 words, I think, in total of endnotes on this uh, on this separate hosted website. And none of them are actually in the physical book. So if you want, you can hold the book and have your phone. And when you see a footnote, you can go straight to it. It seems to me that might be a practical way of doing so in the future. But it did make it much easier to make the tough decisions on cutting stuff, because if all you were doing was actually relegating it to a separate site, you haven't completely lost it. So uh, that got me out of some <laughs> some, some tough decisions, uh, I would say. But between us, uh, both me and Joyce probably had... Um, our own views about what was essential, and so of course that was a that was a negotiation, that was a discussion. I'm not known for being brief when I write; I overwrite terribly. Joyce is uh, far more concise, given her background in news. So it was a process, I would say, working out what has been there. Uh,
0: But that's the 30,000 that was in the original manuscript and then now you've put it in this separate website, which like it's the spillover and that makes sense. However, in the original manuscript, there would have been a cutoff point because as you say, you could be reading forever about all of the stuff that's been written on Macquarie Bank. So what was the thing that made you, what was your benchmark that made you think should this go in or not? Not not the 30,000 words, but before that.
1: In terms of the actual subject matter and the products mm. and all that, we have to just stop and think: Is this interesting, or are we just reading writing about this because we've, you know, we've had our head inside this bank for so long when everything is interesting? You have to make yourself step out of it a little and think of the reader. I, I have a note attached to my screen which says, "Remember the reader," uh, mm. and I refer to it often. That this book isn't for me, and it's not for. Macquarie, and it's not for Joyce, it's ultimately for a reader, and you have to keep them on side. And you do that by not just absolutely bombarding them with unnecessary information. But that's a judgment call, of course, because every reader is different. Uh, So then the question becomes, have you been balanced in your coverage, both in terms of timeframe, in terms of business line, in terms of geography? Is there anything obvious that's missing? If there is, put it in and then we'll claw our way back from there. Uh, so once we felt we had covered all bases and there was nothing conspicuous by its absence, I think we were getting to the point where we thought, right, this is a first draft. Now it's time to stop. No more research. Now the emphasis has to be on cutting back and refining, uh, which, as you know, is excruciating.
0: <laughs> now, when you're writing about, well, a bank, there is the um, danger that it is could um, veer into like you're writing a deal memo or that you are writing too much about the facts and that it loses a bit of the personality and colour and emotion that often does surround these deals. What did you do to ensure that you had that balance, that you were still accurate and comprehensive enough so that somebody in the know would go, oh yes, that's correct, but also make it, um, you know, interesting and entertaining, which inherently I believe business is, but sometimes people view in the wrong direction? What did you consciously have to do to make that happen?
1: Yeah, you're dead right. It's the biggest danger you face. Both Joyce and I have spent our lives writing for highly financially literate audiences, me in particular, Uh, and you really must force yourself to stop and think, Is this gonna be of interest to people who are not bankers? Is this language accessible? Does everybody know what an IPO is or a buyback? Probably they don't. So how far do you go down spelling it out and just how much spelling out can you do before you completely lose the rhythm of a sentence or the flair of a paragraph of a story? So Joyce and I, I think we're good for each other on that. Uh, Just reviewing each other's work and saying, this is all technically correct but where's the story are we helping the reader through this and alan and unwin in particular um because you know they're very smart people but they're not bankers and that's good that's what we needed we needed people to read it who were not bankers and uh, does this still make sense to you is there still flair here is it is it entertaining so it was really a question of checks and balances i would say because you can tell yourself you've written something which is intuitively uh Uh, correct, and entertaining for a wide range of people. But you don't actually know until you consult a few people. And given that we were never able to let this thing circulate widely before publication, it was a narrow number of people. So so counting on one another to tell some hard truths about what's entertaining and what's boring was, I think, pretty important. It's one of the great benefits of having a co-author, I would say.
0: Mm. And I think also it's getting the balance between um, so you're right. It's 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 wondering where the line is, whether you're over explaining or not. But it's also getting the balance of including the humanity, where you include scenes of you know people going to a hockey game in Canada and witnessing the infrastructure, the road there, or or playing indoor cricket. You know, where, in, in, playing indoor cricket in the office and hitting the future potential CEO in the head with a cricket ball. Um, what? How conscious were you to make sure that those sorts of scenes were in there? Or did that come naturally to you? Or did you have to go back and go, you know what, this is a bit too much on the structure of this public-private partnership. Maybe I, we need to include some uh, human interaction and emotion in there or humour or, yeah, or humour. It-
1: Or humor. Absolutely. It can be funny. It has to be funny, but there's a responsibility (laughs) to be funny. If you want someone to stick with you for 440 pages, you better entertain them a little bit instead (laughs) of giving them a list of deals. And I'm a great believer in the human, the color. You don't want to overuse it in such a way that it's obviously got no relevance to the subject matter. But you're still fundamentally telling a story about people and people do funny things, interesting things. And, you know, you've mentioned a couple of my favorite ones right there. Uh, and I, I think if you lose track of it being about humans, then you're going to lose your reader, because otherwise, what, what, what's the point? You don't want to spend however long it takes you to read a book that long, with people who don't appear to be people. So hopefully, it's natural to both of us. Hopefully, we both had an eye. For the human story, for the anecdote, for all of that good stuff. But nevertheless, you're absolutely right. You go back again and think, if I got a slab of four pages of text here with no life in it, because if I do, then that's just not going to work. So you know, George and I would, would, would you know again review each other's stuff and say, look, we, we need some levity, some colour here. Uh, and, and there's no excuse for not doing it. If you if you ask the right questions in interview and spend enough time with people, there is always life in the most arcane of subjects. So. Um, uh, hopefully we've got enough in to keep readers with us. We'll we'll see when, when the reviews start appearing on Amazon how well we did.
0: I love the line. The story really starts with Peter Salisbury, who had been part of the Hills Motorway deal going to a toll road conference in Denver in 1997 for the International Bridge, Tunnel and Turnpike Association, which sounds like the sort of party you really wouldn't want to miss.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think macquarie bankers spend an awful lot of their lives in these sorts of fronts i mean you wouldn't believe they could be so obscure uh there is a forum for everything there was a trade magazine for everything i've written for some of them and uh that was funny but, but peter sultry who you mentioned i mean he he was absolute gold uh you know he, he was pivotally involved in some crucial deals for macquarie in canada but he's also got this sort of raconteur's skill of remembering the detail. So he's also the one you mentioned, you know, that, that, that they happened to turn up on the day of Wayne Gretzky's farewell uh, hockey game in Toronto. That's a, that's another one from him. And, um, you know, the best interviewees are the ones who give you great information but also remember uh, to keep the character and the life in it as well.
0: So I believe that stories about the corporate world and the and- Things that happen in business are inherently page-turning because they are full of high risk, high stakes, high emotion, incredibly color- colorful characters, um, okay. villains, sort of heroes. <laughs> why? And so I, I I understand the attraction of writing something of this nature. I'm curious to know why you decided to go into the world of writing about business and finance and so on in the first place and what you enjoy about it?
1: Well, for me personally, uh, it wasn't the plan. You know, I came out of uni in the UK in 1993 in the middle of a recession, determined to write for a living. But like a lot of 21-year-olds, I thought, oh, I'm going to write about music. I'm going to write about travel. I'm going to write about books. But it turns out, Quite a few people already wanted to do that. So, the only job I could initially get was writing about lawyers. And over a period of time, I switched from law to uh, business and finance. But along the way, to my considerable surprise, I learned that it was actually interesting or could be interesting if you did it properly. I think an awful lot of people writing about business and finance, they start out when they write, they're really explaining it to themselves. And I probably have about a two year chunk at the start of my career when I was doing exactly that. But eventually you get in and there's a couple of crucial realizations. One is that these guys are not actually rocket scientists, or some of them are, but in the main, they're ordinary reasonably smart people, but there is this code almost around financial services. And once you crack it, you realize that you're dealing with perfectly uh, normal, acceptable, and understandable concepts. So that becomes compelling. What then do you mean? There really is this
0: like code. It. Sorry to interrupt, but what did you mean by "there is this code"? Think about
1: it. You know, people talk about you know collateralized debt obligations, basic swaps. You know, there's this language, okay, which fabulous. can be deeply exclusion exclusionary to some readers. But it doesn't take that long to learn that language, and then when you figure that out, you think, okay, well, now I can actually deal with this industry as an industry full of people and stories. And I also realized that I could travel the world doing it. That was a great thing I discovered. Uh, so uh, an awful lot of my time has been spent in is trade publications like EuroMoney and Asia Money. But if, if you're a regional correspondent for a title like that, you, you, you've got carte blanche to go all over the region, all over the world. And that's, that, that's been a wonderful thing for me. I, I, I've really, really enjoyed all of that. I mean, the other thing is once you've made the effort to learn what these people are banging on about, you don't swiftly want to walk away from it. Uh, it's taken a lot of time to get within that world. So when you become an expert on something, um, partly it's lucrative. A lot of my life I've been freelance and the absolute key to successful freelancing is having niche areas in which you are one of the best and can speak to with authority. Uh, So, you know, that pays the rent apart from anything else. But but the other thing is, it just turned out to be so much more interesting than I thought it would be. And it's significant. You know, one thing I write about is sovereign wealth funds, which in Australia, the closest equivalent is the Future Fund. And some of these places have literally a trillion dollars uh, of wealth, which they hold on behalf of people as stewards for the state. You know, Norway's got on, which worth a trillion. Abu Dhabi, they never tell you the number, but it's probably a trillion. China, the same, Saudi's heading that way. Covering wealth on that scale is important. It matters and it's interesting. So all of these things have kept me within it. And, you know, I'm past 50 now. I'm, I'm probably not making that many more changes of direction at this late stage. I love to write travel journalism. I love to do all sorts of stuff. But the core of what I do has always remained business and financial journalism.
0: So how did you fit this in? How did you fit in writing a book, a, a tome of this depth, with you know your your day job, which is freelance, but still it's it's your your it's still your day job, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. And at that time, it was not freelance. I was uh, the Asia editor for a publication called EuroMoney plus some freelance. Uh, so both Joyce and I faced the same problem, which was finding the time and how much can you negotiate off. Joyce, if I remember correctly, took a leave of absence of three or four months. I just used all the annual leave that backed up through Covid. You know, I hadn't taken a holiday in two years and I still couldn't go anywhere really at the start of it. Uh, And that created a huge uh, chunk of time. And then my editor, Louise Bowman, was just enormously accommodating as well and giving me further free time. So there were chunks of uh, of time in which each of us could work exclusively on the book, they didn't overlap entirely. I think there was a month in common. So at any given time, one of us was sort of advancing it all. But a, a, a hell of a lot of it was done on our own time. In my case, in the three hours of the morning when Australia was working, but Singapore was not. That's when you do all of your interviews, or in my case, there might be uh, after hours with, with the States or, or wherever else. But it's a challenge. There's no question about it. If if you don't take a massive six month sabbatical, then you are really going to be chasing your tail, trying to do a few things at once, particularly, you know, for drafting time when you're getting close to deadline. and It it does tend to sort of concertina at a certain point. Uh, But we got through it. We got it done.
0: Now, both of your names are on the cover and inside in the chapters, there's one particular chapter that is clearly attributed to you. There's one particular chapter that's clearly attributed to Joyce, but the rest is a collaboration. But how did that work? Did you go, oh, you take chapter one, I'll take chapter two. You take- how did that work? How did you divide it up or did you actually work on the same chapters?
1: So, the research was done collectively. I, I, if I had to guess, out of the 130 chat, uh, interviewees, I'm going to guess 70 or 80 we did it together. And then about, I don't know, whatever, 30 a piece we did separately, basically. Like on, on Zoom? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, usually, yes. Um, in fact, yeah, I think there was only one interview where we were both physically in the same room as the interviewee. One out of 130, that's a sign of the times it was written in. Uh, so, so that's the research side of it. When it comes to writing, uh, leaving aside as you've mentioned the road trip chapters, which were very individual pieces of writing that we did independently and decided to buyline, uh, that we, we sort of that, that there was a loose splitting up of it. So Joyce did more of the early years. Joyce's contacts among you know those elder statesmen and women of Australian banking are impeccable. Uh, So she tended to do more of the start. She did more of the later side, too. It was important to her personally to write about Shamara uh, as a leading woman who has totally cracked the glass ceiling in Australia. And I, in practice, did pretty much anything international uh, and more of the middle, sort of from the 90s through to the GFC and its immediate aftermath. So that's the broad structure. But within that, uh, no matter who was writing the first draft of a chapter, we might be contributing particular bits Into it. So if I did the chapter on the 90s of the Alan Moss years up to when Macquarie bought BT, Joyce contributed the chunk on the growth of the property business right into the middle of that. Uh, I might have been writing about the uh, the boom time years in the early 2000s, but there's a section on the bid for Qantas and Joyce put that one in. Uh, And of course, we both reviewed each other's chapters. We tried to bring the style somewhat in common. You can still probably tell there's two different voices in there. Uh, but, you know, we, we each reviewed and, and, and helped one another. And then the fact checking was done collectively as well. So we had like a second line of defense to make sure that we were getting everything right. So probably both of us wondered at the outset, how is this actually going to work in practice? And it sort of evolved along the way. But hopefully it's come out as something that's cohesive. And it was uh, absolutely uh, in every possible respect a joint enterprise.
0: Yes, it's very cohesive. Now, um, I have been very remiss because to I'm not ask you this for the listeners because anyone, of course, in the world of business or finance knows why it's called the Millionaire's Factory and it's been called that for a very long time. Um, but for those listeners who are not from that world, can you explain that?
1: Yeah, It's a nickname it started to get in, I think, roughly the early 2000s is when we traced it to. And that was a point at which something interesting was happening to Macquarie. It had gone in its previous years from being this collection of very smart, opportunistic underdogs taking on the big man to around 2000. It clearly went from one state of affairs to the other until it was the big name. Uh, and that was a really interesting time. A few different things were happening at once. They were getting themselves into far bigger profile deals. A lot of listeners will remember the Sydney airport bid in the early 2000s and all of the extraordinary flack that came with all of that, the huge fight with Virgin, the fight with Alan Jones. Certainly there was a whole lot of extra um, artillery heading in their general direction, which was new to them. And the other thing that was really getting noticeable was just how much money they were making. And Macquarie, to be fair to them, has always very, very, very closely linked compensation to results. You don't get rich in Macquarie doing nothing. You just do not. But if you do make a ton of money for the business, you will also make a ton of money for yourself, provided you don't blow the place up doing it. And you get linked in for the very long term as well. So, But there are any skeletons in the closet. You're not going to run away from them. They're going to appear while you're still there. So that discipline is good. But through the early 2000s, as their profits just, they were sometimes going up 60% year on year from about 2000 up to the GFC. You know, that meant the chief executive, Alan Moss, at the time, his deputy, Nicholas Moore, you know, the the head of the property group, Bill, Bill Moss, no relation. They were making tens of millions of dollars every single year. A lot of them bonuses that they couldn't immediately get. They had to wait for 10 years to get them all, but it was a huge amount of money coming in. And no one else in Australia was disclosing numbers like that. It might be that the foreign banks' executives were earning that money, but but, but that's not disclosed. You would never know when anyone at UBS or Goldman Sachs was in They don't have to tell you. But certainly no one else in Australian uh, private sector life was earning that sort of disclosed money at the time. So they absolutely stuck out like a sore thumb. And it was around this time that this nickname came and stuck. The millionaire factory originally, you would not believe the discussions we had about where or if there ought to be an apostrophe in that world. <laughs> Is it a factory owned by millionaires, a plural of millionaires or one millionaire? Is it a factory that makes millionaires? You know, all of these brings you to a different outcome about whether there's an S and whether there's an apostrophe. And I, we just lost weeks going around in circles on this thing.
0: Oh, that's hilarious. Now, you mentioned that um, the thing is that maybe some of the foreign banks, their executives may well have been earning that level of money. We we don't know because they weren't required to disclose it, but Macquarie being an Australian bank had to disclose it. And I just love the story in the book where you say that someone from Macquarie was basically complaining about that to Peter Costello and Peter Costello, who was then treasurer, I suppose, said, yeah, go cry to your millions at night, go on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Costello was hilarious, actually. Uh, I mean, he is um, a great speaker of truths to people uh, and I can recall being on the other side of attempting to speak truth to him. It's not an easy thing to do. But but, but there were two things about Costello which were particularly interesting. One is that point on compensation. And he said, uh, you know what, I don't like my salary being disclosed either because mine is embarrassing. So don't whinge to me about how much you earn just because everybody's heard about it. And that, I mean, to be a fly on the wall there would have yes. been just a beautiful thing.
0: That is uh, but so the other true. thing that really
1: came through <laughs> from Peter Costello was just this sense of almost convivial jousting, I think, particularly at a time when infrastructure was really growing as an asset class in Australia and Macquarie had made its name getting involved in intricate finance arrangements. And they were known for taking any tax break and taking it to its absolute maximum legal limit, not beyond. So they are not breaking the law, but if there's a loophole, if there's an opportunity, they are going to find it. And Costello, on the other side, would spot them doing this and sort of push them back, and you just have this funny sort of backwards and forth between the two. But what sticks in my mind is that he almost saw a humour in it, a gamesmanship in it, and he said Macquarie would never complain when told to be pushed back. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, all right, you got us there. And you know, <laughs> and so this this thing of defining precisely where the acceptable line was on uh, tax engineering and so forth. Uh, I, I found it interesting to get this insight into how it was uh, in, in in real life within, you know, the walls of politics and the top level of banking.
0: Speaking of defining exactly where the line was, I think there was an interesting line that you did not cross, but you came very, very close because I was wondering if you were going to go there because a lot of people, I mean, many people came. Um, <laughs> Well, the, when you came close was when you cited the Virgin Airlines billboards where Richard Branson, who was obviously having a fight with them at the time, said Macquarie Bank, what a bunch of bankers.
1: bankers. Now, yeah.
0: obviously <laughs> he meant something else because if you're, uh, you know, around Ryan's Bar or if you're in that industry at all, you say, oh, yeah, he he or she. Well, you don't really say she. He's a Macquarie, not banker, but the other word. Um, but you never uh, mentioned that. You, you you came close with the billboard. Was that something that was, because that is common parlance. Uh, so was that something that was done on purpose? Well, uh,
1: I mean, it's legitimate to look into the character of people who might work at Macquarie. And, and it partly depends on what you think of people who make a lot of money. If you dislike people who make a ton of money, you're going to hate an awful lot of people at Macquarie. You just are. And there is a whole separate discussion we really didn't get into about, you know, the social benefits or otherwise of the nature of capitalism and whether it's appropriate for certain things to be in private sector hands versus public sector hands. That's a bigger debate that could take us forever. We kind of accepted, like, this is Macquarie doing what they do. Let's see how they did it Uh, and, you know, what they became as a consequence. So if you don't like investment bankers, and lots of people don't like investment bankers, you're not really going to like Macquarie people. That's sort of an article of faith, really. But culturally, are they cutthroat? Are they any different to any other uh, investment bankers? I don't know, you'll hear different views. I mean, people stay there for 30 odd years. So once they're in, they are really, really in. And even when they leave, you would think out of, of all of the former employees we spoke to, there would be a lot with scores to settle going, I hate the place. There were really, very, very few. You know, once they've once, once had the Macquarie ship in Sursley, it, it does tend to stay in there and they remain genuinely <laughs> rather experiential and, and sort of proud uh, about the place. You know, there are rubbers who leave and think that place was never for me. It's just, it, it, it's, it's cutthroat. It's, it's, you know, the hours are just insane. Um, you know, they, they all think they're the smartest guys in the room. So it's ever difficult to generalise about personality. It's an institution of twenty thousand people. There are going to be people in there that you like and those that you don't. Uh, and you know, to to some, they will always be a bunch of bankers. But what can you do?
2: Great
0: answer. (laughs) I love it. All right. What was the most enjoyable thing about writing this book?
1: My favourite thing, uh, you, you alluded earlier to the two bylined chapters, the road trips. Joyce went across Australia. I went across or rather south to north of the United States to Canada. And we were sort of making a point, which was, No matter where you go, you can't go anywhere without tripping over something that Macquarie either owns, has owned, or at some stage inevitably probably will. Uh, Either a line of businesses that they have, an infrastructure asset that's in one of their funds. And uh, so I went from uh, basically New Orleans all the way north. And, And the point was just proven time and again. And the more obscure the place, the better it was. Pineville, Louisiana. They own a power station there. Oklahoma, it's water pipelines. Kansas, it's a fund manager. Missouri, it's data cables. Indiana, it was a toll road. Not anymore. You know, Michigan, they used to own a, 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 a tunnel which links Detroit to, to Canada. Everywhere. They are everywhere. But that tells you a lot. Macquarie going overseas has not just been about setting up some massive trade in Florida, New York or London. You know, they're on the ground and they're in the weeds. And that is a huge part of their success because they're early to everything. So they will get into an asset before it really occurs to anybody else. And then they'll sell it to maybe one of the massive uh, uh, super funds or, or for example, one of their equivalents, the pension funds in Canada. Uh, and, and it is an extremely powerful business model, but it stems from being on the ground in places that others haven't even heard of, never, never mind really been to or or become familiar with and I did really enjoy that I mean there's something about an American road trip which is sort of romantic at the best of times even if you're actually looking at infrastructure assets (laughs) pointing out the window at container terminals Um, but, but, but it was both instructive and interesting and I did very much enjoy that I suspect if you asked Joyce she would say something similar Uh, about bouncing across Australia, hydrogen hubs, um, all sorts of different things. So so that was a lot of fun. And the other thing was just the range of people who would speak to us. People were incredibly generous and open with their time, both current and former employees, right up to the chief executive. And um, you get a lot of insights from that. You know, I made the point at the launch, it's fine to have your name on the cover of a book, And to be the storyteller who gets to choose what it says. But Joyce and I had nothing without people who were prepared to speak to us. And that requires not only time, but trust. And uh, I'm always just immensely grateful that anyone actually takes the time to, to to speak to us because if you don't have that, no book.
0: Honestly, I could talk to you for hours about this, but we probably have to wrap up. So I'm gonna end with what were your if somebody is wanting to write a business story you know, a corporate story. What are your top three tips of what they need to consider to make that story, you know, powerful and engaging?
1: Well, one, there must be a story as there would in any other way, as there would in fiction. There must be narrative, there must be a journey, there must be characters. Uh, And that is just as true in the real world and just as true in business as it is in any other form of literature. And you must see it that way, or you're on a total non-starter. Two, it does help if there's an obvious reader who might buy the thing. So uh, <laughs> in uh, Macquarie's case, that's probably its alumni. You know, they've got twenty thousand staff now. Uh, there's probably a hundred thousand or for it. That's useful. I'd like them to buy it. That <laughs> would just be marvellous. It's not just the
0: alumni. It's okay. everyone in the banking industry. It's everyone in the the business world too. So uh,
1: oh, you've got no okay. shortage
0: of, of, of readers.
1: <laughs> yes, and I, and I hope that's true worldwide as well. Uh, we'll, we'll find out uh, how true that is. But certainly mm-hmm. if you want to get a pitch through a publisher, question number one is who's going to buy this thing? Uh, so, so there is no sense in, in, in starting with a, a labour of love if you want to get it through a publisher. If, if if you can't identify the person who will read it, and then third, I think what was useful to us was to be clear on what we wanted to do because there is a lot of different books you could write about the quarry. You could write a hatchet job if you wanted mm. to. You could write um, you could write an extremely dull academic tone if you wanted to, there's probably room for both of those things. But fundamentally, we decided early on, what we wanted to do was explain a culture. Think of it almost as uh, like like a biography, but of a place rather than a person. And just like a biography of a person, it's fine to get all of the facts and the dates right in the right order, but that's your baseline. That's no more than your starting point. Unless you've said something interesting about character, uh, then you've done nothing. So in our case, we wanted to explain character and culture and we thought that was essential to the premise and we knew it in every interview that we did and every chapter that we wrote, that that was ultimately what we'd be judged by had we succeeded in explaining a culture of what is truthfully a success story. So, yeah, those are my three, I think.
0: Thank you so much for your time today, Chris.
1: Well, Thank you for having me, Valerie. This was fun. This podcast is brought
0: to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our course, Freelance Writing at Stage 1. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week online course is the fastest way to get there. Step-by-step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, approach editors, research and structure your article, plus learn about interview skills, industry expectations and much more and have your own tutor to answer all your questions. Here's what Heather Smith
2: says... I followed Valerie who was writing for Sydney Morning Herald and um, those sorts of publications and she really wrote articles that connected with me and resonated with me and I thought oh I could write like that and then when she launched the Australian Writers Centre I joined up for one of the earliest courses. The first course which was five weeks long was more education and more learning than two years of a private high school English education. I just learnt so much, I got so much confidence from it. Um, and it sort of catapulted me into the writing sphere. What it taught me was that content was important, structure was important, and having a diverse case studies, uh, see an idea really quickly and think this is going to be so interesting for the reader um, and getting the the, the various angles that are required on it. The importance of developing relationships with editors, understanding the magazines, or the publications that you're writing for. So that's really important. So you can actually have the same theme and write about it for numerous uh, publications. Also within that, there is uh, a lot of support within the community. There's constant education. I've written um, eight books which are best-selling books and I absolutely recommend the Australian Writers' Centre to all of my friends who are keen to have a writing career. It's immensely supportive and immensely educational.
0: If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash freelance writing. Okay, we're almost at the end of this week's episode. I considered having this, what I'm about to say, as a word of the week, but it's actually a fairly new word. A retronym is a word that has had to be changed or have something added because of something that has happened since it was first coined. So for example, the acoustic guitar was renamed from simply guitar to distinguish it from the electric guitar. Some other examples, snail mail to distinguish it from email, whole milk or dairy milk to distinguish it from low fat or non-dairy alternatives, tap water, right, as opposed to bottle water. Analog clock these days or, or 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 an analog watch instead of digital. Traditional animation rather than digital or computer ina- animation. Brick and mortar shop. <laughs> I mean it just used to be a shop, right? Rather than online shopping. And then it even applies to pop culture like classic Doctor Who or classic Battlestar Galactica as opposed to their modern reboots, right? The good old phone has gone through many retronyms from what used to be just a phone. We then had a rotary phone, then the push-button phone, the cordless phone, and now they're all just landlines. (laughs) The word retronym was coined in 1980 by American journalist Frank Mankiewicz, who was interested in how books became hardcover books, then softcover books, and then paperbacks, and then Trade paperbacks. And of course, now we have ebooks as well. Let me know if you have any favourite retronyms. All right, this brings us to the end of this week's episode. I'd love to connect with you on social media. Feel free to join the Facebook group that I've already mentioned. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook or just connect with me directly. I'm at Valerie Koo, that's K H O O, on Twitter and Instagram and over on ValerieKoo.com, where I live my other life. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast, or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercenter.com.au slash news, where you'll find writing resources giveaways, competitions and much more.